going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 20 in a second. We're talking today about reasonable faith. And I asked this maybe kind of provocative question, is it foolish to believe in God? And it's provocative, I guess, to us who believe in God, but to the world it's not provocative. They would say, absolutely, it's foolish. And today as we look at different reasons, this is of course just a sampling, and, and because of our time limitations, I'm going to have to give you a very high level, um, I guess, discussion or talk on these different reasons to believe in God, but these are some very good reasons, and there are, there are many others, because I think it's not only reasonable to believe in God, I believe that, it is the, that God is the greatest explanation for the existence we find ourselves in. I'm going to begin with this. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. God is not surprised by people who think it's foolish to believe in him. How the God of the universe has decided to reveal himself to us, both through creation, through other things that we're going to talk about today, and also the person of Jesus Christ. But he's not sitting corporally beside you in this very moment, meaning you can't see him and touch him at this very moment, but he is here. And so those who aren't seeking him in faith, it is not surprising that they don't find him. And so scripture says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so it's a challenge. I start off with almost uh, what I would say is almost a warning from God to anyone here today who says there is no God, that God has foresaw you. He knew what you would think. I begin today in our uh, passage in 1 Corinthians, we're going to read several verses, but I'm going to start with verse 20 to kind of set the stage for this idea. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20 says this, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? You have wisdom, you have teacher, you have a debater. Now, during this time, of course, uh, when, when they would be, I guess, rebelling against the wisdom of God, and specifically as he's talking to the Jewish people, these individuals would reject the Messiah. Now, of course, modern times, they not only reject the Messiah, but even this idea of a God, but the Jewish people would have rejected the Messiah specifically. The Greek people would have maybe rejected uh, monotheism or also specifically Jesus Christ. And so he says, where's the one who is wise? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the debater of this age? And so I want to begin by just thinking what, what modern thinkers think. What modern thinkers believe about this question, is it foolish to believe in God? And so, as I think of academia, which of course has been uh, greatly influenced by the Enlightenment period. The Enlightenment period of the 17th and 18th centuries was thought of by philosophers and academics of the time as almost a liberation of humanity from the reliance on God or government as authorities. They believe that reason... And the natural world were avenues to progress since under, human understanding had, and this is, this is a paraphrase of the thought, human understanding had overcome the need for something such as God. Now, that sounds quite blasphemous to say from a pulpit, and it is blasphemous. This is what they thought, and mainstream academia still believes. Indeed, in 1882, 
German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. He accepted these conclusions of the Enlightenment, but he also reasoned against the potentially harmful consequences that would come from the Enlightenment period, something he called nihilism. So nihilism, which is Latin for nothing, is, I believe, the inevitable moral decay of a society that no longer accepts God. Because if there is no God, morals are subjective, and life is just a random accident and therefore meaningless. So on the one hand, Nietzsche, he fought against the dangerous application of the Enlightenment. But on the other hand, he accepted the popular conclusion that there was no God and humanity had reached a point that they no longer needed God. And so why do I bring up Nietzsche? Because I'm going to quote his famous quotation that he penned in 1882. He said, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. Now, that, again, sounds quite blasphemous to say from a pulpit, and it is blasphemous, but this is what society believes. They believe that there is no God. And so to avoid offense, let me say this. Romans 14, 11 says, It is written as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, or every tongue will give praise to God. When Friedrich Nietzsche, several years later, died of syphilis, he met God. He is no longer an atheist. He knows that there is a God, but he had not bowed his knee voluntarily. Therefore, he has to bow his knee out of force because there is a God of the universe. But as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, when it says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of the age to, to live in a society that is greatly influenced by this idea that human reason, human understanding had risen above the need to have a God, to think that we could have morals, we could have purpose, we could have all these things to not need a God. Well, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And maybe you've heard some of these. These are just different things that the debaters of the age, of our age, would say. I wonder if you've heard this. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? You ever heard that? Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Well, no, because God is not an irrational God. He's a rational God. Sometimes we get afraid to say that there are things that an all-powerful God can't do. Well, we know he can't sin. He can't lie. There are things he can't do. He cannot do things that are inconsistent with his nature. It's inconsistent to, to his nature to do things that are irrational. And there cannot exist a rock so big that God can't lift it. Therefore, he could not make such a rock. Or maybe you've heard this one. If God is all-powerful and all-good, then why is there evil? Since there is evil, God must not be all-powerful and therefore can't, cannot stop evil. Or if he is all-powerful, then he must not be all-good because for some reason he won't stop evil. Since there is evil, God must not be either all good or all powerful. And if you remove one of those components, his goodness or his power, then he's not God. Now, of course, there's, again, a reasonable explanation to something like this. For instance, I believe that God, in his sovereignty, although he has control over all things, I believe he has given humans the ability to rebel against him. And as we see the picture in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve did indeed rebel against sin and, and sin entered into this world and through sin, death and pain and suffering. And one day God will put an end to all of that. 
But he is giving opportunity for every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord before the end. I've heard this one. This one's just kind of snarky. It says, uh, I don't believe in talking snakes, referencing the Genesis account. Or here's the one that I think is it's the most creative and maybe most audacious. I don't know if you've heard this, but saying, I, don't be- or, I believe in a flying spaghetti monster in the sky. Now, you may be like, that's weird. I've never heard of that. It's a real thing. According to uh, Got Questions Ministries, in 2005, in protest of the Kansas State Board of Education's decision to require teaching of intelligent design, design in addition to Darwinian evolution, a man named Bobby Henderson, he professed belief in a flying spaghetti monster. So this is a guy who doesn't believe in God, doesn't want intelligent design taught, and so he professed belief in a flying spaghetti monster as the universe's supernatural creator. Henderson then mockingly demanded that his belief, the flying spaghetti monster, which is also known as the spaghetti deity. That's really creative. I said it was creative created the universe with a touch from his noodly appendage. With the motive of mocking intelligent design theory, Henderson wrote, I think we can all look forward to the time when these three theories are given equal time in our science classrooms across the country, and eventually the world, one-third time for intelligent design, one-third time for flying spaghetti monster, and one-third time for the logical conjecture based on overwhelming observable evidence. Of course, he's talking about evolution. From this beginning, flying spaghetti monsterism, that's the uh, religious name if you want to know, has gained a cult following with its advocates calling themselves Pastafarians. I said it was creative. None of the advocates of Pastafarianism genuinely believe in the existence of the flying spaghetti monster. Rather, this mock religion's only intent is to argue against intelligent design being taught in schools as an alternative theory to Darwinian evolution. Now, imagine this. The creativity that goes into something like creating Pastafarianism. To believe in a a flying spaghetti monster in the sky. It's absurd, but it is creative. And the God that he mocks gave him the ability to come up with that creation. Are we to suppose that Darwinian evolution through a series of random mutations came up with the brilliance of a mind that could come up with something so absurd and yet comical as Pastafarianism? Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? So what does God say? This is the setting This is how people would feel toward Christianity, religion in general, and specifically Christianity, that they would mock it, that they would make up things to to just say, it's foolish to believe in God, which of course it's not. And so we're going to look at four reasons today about why it's not foolish. I'm going to begin again with uh, our passage and look now one verse above as we look at God's response says, for it is written, in verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligence. Now, here Paul is referencing Isaiah 29 to show Old Testament support in this whole section that is intended to teach humans to not to try to compete in battles of intellect against 
God. But if those who want true wisdom also seek out God, there are rational reasons to believe. So he's not saying there can be no wisdom, there can be no intellect. What he's doing is saying that those who would challenge God's intellect or call God foolish, God will destroy their wisdom, God will destroy their intellect. But to the heart that sincerely seeks God, there are reasonable reasons to believe in God. Some that I'm not going to touch on today, just thinking of archaeology, the biblical record, the fossil record, prophecy. Those are all different lines of thought that a person could go through, study through, and find different answers that are quite compelling. But I'm going to give you four almost philosophical arguments, three philosophical and one which is the crux of the whole matter. So the first one is this, the cosmological argument. If you're writing in your notes, the first one is the cosmological argument. So this is the first cause argument. So cosmological, coming from the Greek word cosmos, which means the created world, the universe, all created things. And, and what this is arguing is that there had to be a first cause to something. The Christian apologist William Lane Craig said, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. And so if you contrast this with what, what secularists or Darwinian, Darwinian evolutionists must believe, they must believe that matter, material, has always been around. And so if you look back to the beginning, then of course the teaching is the Big Bang. But what was before the Big Bang? What came before that moment? What was there before the Big Bang? Was there nothing? And if there was nothing, how do you get something? And if you say there's just a series of bangs and, and explosions and collapse, you still have to believe that this is eternally true, going back to eternity past. And what we know about energy is eventually it runs out. They've done the math on even the energy in black holes, which should be one of the last things to last in our universe. And while it's just mind-boggling numbers about how long the energy in black holes last, they still run out. And if you're talking about eternity past, eternity past, no, no beginning, then energy itself would have ran out. You see, if you just say there is a Big Bang, and, and by Big Bang, I actually don't have a problem with the idea of a Big Bang. I believe God said, let there be, and it was. Instantaneous creation. But if you just have a scientific idea of a Big Bang, then all you've done is kick the can down the road because there at some point had to be a cause. And this cause had to be a self-existent thing or an uncaused caused. And that's exactly what we see in Scripture. Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, this famous passage with Moses talking to God. It says, Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am the self-existent one. God, the uncaused cause. Or Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, which says, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is 
and who is to come, God the self-existent one. The existence of the universe points to a cause. It is logical to believe that an uncaused cause must have started it all. That is a reasonable, a rational thing, and I believe that that uncaused cause is God. The second argument, so if you're writing these down, the first one was the cosmological. The second one is the teleological argument. This is the design argument from the Greek telos, meaning purpose or goal. That means that creation was intentionally made. That it's not just a a random sequence of accidents, a random sequence of mutations, but there's an apparent design. The theologian Norman Geisler says this, since every watch has a watchmaker, and since the universe is exceedingly more complex in its operation than a watch, it follows that there must be a maker of the universe. Or as the Michael Behe, I don't, don't, don't know if you've heard of him, but he's a professor in biochemistry and he's author, author of the great book, Darwin's Black Box. He argues for the obviousness of intelligent design from a biomolecular level. He argues that no one has ever explained in detail and scientific fashion how mutation and natural selection could build the complex, intricate molecular structures that we see in life. For instance, the eye. Darwin claimed that creatures with lesser developed eyes were an example of the evolutionary process of eye development. So meaning we humans have incredible eyes and there are creatures with lesser eyes. And so there's an example of stages of eye development. But Darwin never attempted to tackle how and why a cell becomes photosensitive at all. And they simply didn't understand how complex, how immensely complex the eye is. Science just couldn't at that time. Other examples such as blood clotting, the immune system, or little things like the cilia and the flagella of cells, the incomparable code that is DNA. Even this is an interesting one if you just want some Google research, the bombardier beetle. The bombardier beetle is an interesting one because if it didn't have some things exactly right, this beetle would blow up. It is an irreducible, has an irreducibly complex system inside it. Systems that are irreducibly complex cannot have arrived from random mutations because an irreducibly complex system cannot survive if the components are not all there. So think, for instance, if the human cardiovascular system, uh, we have blood clotting. We're all quite grateful for blood clotting. You don't think about it until you need it. But how would that evolve in a creature? How would that evolve if I got cut before that evolved into humanity? Then I bleed to death. Something like blood clotting makes our cardiovascular system irreducibly complex. It could never have existed without it. And that's just one example. And it's also an example of why would something like that develop? Have you thought about that? If, if Darwinian evolution is true, why would something like blood clotting develop? What's the reason behind it? What, what is the purpose behind something like that? It's almost like there's an intentional, intelligent, purposeful designer who gave humans exactly what we needed to survive. The intentional nature of creation points 
to an intelligent designer. It points to God. It is logical to believe that a world in which so much order and seemingly intentional design had a designer. Our very planet being caught perfectly in this Goldilocks zone where it's not too hot, it's not too cold. It is just right to sustain life for water to pool. It's got just the right amount of gravity where it doesn't crush us, but it holds us down. It's got a a wonderful magnetic field that stops us from being burned by the radiation of the sun that gives light to everything. Creation points to a designer. Now, Romans chapter 1 talks about this, and it also talks about the reasons why, even though there is so much obviousness behind the intelligence of our design, people would reject it. Romans chapter 1 says this, should be on the screen. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. So hear that. God declares himself And yet people don't accept it because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness or sin. Meaning our sin can blind us against the truth of God. Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world. Being understood through what has been made. As a result, people are without excuse. A man like Friedrich Nietzsche or the inventor of pastafarianism, they can mock God all they want, but he will hold them without excuse because he is clearly seen through his creation. Verse 21, For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Because the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The cosmological argument is logical. The teleological argument, it is a reasonable thing. Someone could disagree with it, but it is reasonable to believe those things. The third one, I'm not going to spend as much time on this one because I want to get to the fourth and most compelling argument. The third one is the moral argument. Moral law implies a lawgiver, the moral argument. C.S. Lewis and uh, the apologists that I've already mentioned, William Lane Craig, they've used this to great effect. The moral law implies a moral lawgiver. If there are moral laws, so similar to design that, that shows an apparent intelligent design, if we have a moral law written in our heart, it implies that there is a lawgiver, that there are objective morals, that even though sometimes people violate morals, There are objective morals in creation. This is what Romans chapter 2 speaks about. So Romans chapter 1 speaks about creation is apparent through, God is apparent through creation. Romans chapter 2 talks about this moral law. Romans 2 verse 14, 15 says this. So when the Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. The presence of a moral code within the heart of man begs the question, why is it there? A moral law implies a lawgiver. It is logical to believe that this unique law in my heart 
was placed there by a lawgiver, and I believe that lawgiver is the God of the Bible. So now, what is the greatest evidence? I'll go ahead and just tell you it, and, and then we'll read through this passage. The greatest evidence, I believe, is the Jesus argument, or you could call it the cross argument, but I think both combined. The Jesus argument. Look again at our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now look at verse 18. So I did these verses backwards, but we're going to go through several of them now. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. I want you to hear that again. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. It is foolish to the world. It is everything to us who are being saved. Verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Because it doesn't make sense, how is the God of the universe going to spare everyone? How is he going to forgive sins? It doesn't make sense to say the vehicle of victory is the cross. This excruciating death, this paying of the penalty, it doesn't make sense that an all-powerful God would do that. But Scripture talks to that as well in Romans chapter 3, verse 26, that God is both just and the justifier, meaning He is holy, He is blameless, and He had to remain that way, but He also wanted to be our liberator. And the only way to do that is to pay the penalty because He is holy. So he will destroy the wisdom of the wise and set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Now look at verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? Verse 21. For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe, meaning you don't just come to God just through sheer intellect. You come through faith, that word belief and the word faith. When you see those in the New Testament, they're, uh, they're related Greek words, pistueo, to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. Well, what is preached? Verse 22, for the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. What does he point to when he says, I have destroyed the wisdom of the wise? He points to the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the most important thing in Christianity. We are Christ followers because he died and rose again. If he didn't die for us, then we are still in our sins. If he didn't rise again, we would have no hope of eternal life. The cross of Jesus Christ is the central thing that we must believe to truly be Christian. And it's also one of the greatest evidences. 1 Corinthians 15 is a famous chapter because it's one of the earliest writings, and we get to see in it a creed from the apostles that had gone around that shows such an early belief about Jesus. So 1 Corinthians 15 should be on the screen. It says, this is the Apostle Paul writing, it says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep, meaning they've died. You have here such an early recitation of the elements of the gospel, the things that we're supposed to believe. And why is it significant? One, it outlays it just beautifully, what we're supposed to believe. But also, it's a reason to believe in and of itself. The uh, work of Dr. Gary Habermas, this is a name that if you're wanting to, to study even more, Gary Habermas, he's the apologetics professor. I think he still is, but he, he was when I went through at Liberty University. And he is an expert on the resurrection he presents a lot of compelling arguments, but I'm just going to give you two with the resurrection. One, why would the disciples die for a lie? So in 1 Corinthians 15, as we see all these things, I passed on to you what is most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day. If that is a lie, then these disciples and followers of Jesus were just out of their mind. Because what they were going to face was not a welcome wagon. What they were going to face was not just joy and victory and celebration and, and prosperity and, and all sorts of great things. What they were going to face was the sword, the lions, crosses of their own, being burned at stakes, being beheaded. They had just killed the leader of the movement. They had just crucified Jesus. Now, if you can imagine this, that you're following Jesus Christ, you're, you're a follower of his, and, and he makes all these claims, makes all these claims that make him equal to God, and, and he talks about, you tear down this temple and I will raise it up. He makes all these claims, and then they kill him. Now what? This man who was supposed to be God in the flesh, I, I was supposed to follow him, but he's dead. And we know he's dead because we saw him, and we know that they buried him. What do you do? You don't continue to follow that man. You go home and, and you hide or, or you go try to find yourself another Messiah. But it obviously wasn't him. Except that they claimed he rose again. They claimed he rose again and that they saw him. And that they believed it so much that they were willing to lay down their lives for him. And even enemies of the cross, like the man who wrote 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, who was an enemy of the cross, claimed that he had seen the resurrected Jesus for as long as God let him, and then he blinded him. These men were willing to go to their death. These men and women were willing to go to their death, saying that they had seen the resurrected Savior. Now, the only option we have is either they're lying, which why would they lie? Why would they die for a lie? Or they're crazy that they're just out of their mind. And yet, if you read through Scripture, it is the most coherent masterpiece ever written, the greatest book I've ever sold, the, the greatest thing that as you read, as I, I've said before, it's the book that you read that also reads you, that tells you the thoughts and intents of your own heart, that brings moral conviction, that brings wisdom for life. They wrote it. They were not out of their mind. They were filled by the Spirit, and they had seen the resurrected Lord. And the second thing, uh, among a great list of things Gary Habermas talked about is, why did no one present the body? Why in all of antiquity do we not have a record of anyone saying, let's put an end to this revolt. 
The Christians are saying they saw him alive again. We still have the body. They knew where it was. They had guards. But the tomb was empty. And so then you end up with other theories. Because they know the tomb is empty, you have to have theories like the swoon theory, meaning that he, uh, he pretended to be dead. Well, no, the Romans were quite good at killing people. Or you have the, the disciples stole the body theory. Well, again, why would they die for something they knew to be a lie? If they didn't see the body, then maybe they could say, well, I think he's resurrected. But if they stole the body, they know he was conquered by death, and therefore he's not who he said he was. And so God destroys the wisdom of the wise, people who would reject Jesus Christ. But Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. It is reasonable to believe in God. Nature points you to Him. Your own heart tells you there is something more. And the cross proves that Jesus Christ is that something more. God became flesh and dwelt among us, died for our sins, and the tomb is empty. The disciples gave their lives saying, Jesus is risen. The cross gives Christians confidence in what we believe. I hope every Christian here today leaves feeling that you believe in a highly logical belief, something that, that it, there is reason to believe. And so as we talk about faith in following weeks, we'll see what faith actually is. And it's not the belief that God exists. Even the devil believes and trembles, as we'll see very soon in our study of James. It's I trust his promises. Because if it just comes down to believing whether or not God exists, there are reasonable reasons to believe. But to the person who is an unbeliever today, the cross beckons you to come, believe, and live. We're now entering our time where we give an opportunity for decision. And there may be someone here today who has never trusted Jesus Christ because you didn't think it was reasonable to do so. I pray today you've heard it is highly logical to do so, and I've just scratched the surface. There is so much more underneath each of these arguments and then other arguments I couldn't explore. It is reasonable to believe in God. I invite you to do that today. In a second, we're going to have a, a time where the church can pray. Church, I encourage you to pray for the community, pray for our schools, pray for people to believe in this highly logical God. But I also want to give you an opportunity, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ, we're going to have pastors at these two tables. I want you to come up and ask how you can be saved. Let's pray.